Confession of Faith, and we are in chapter 28 of Baptism. And we were looking in the fourth paragraph again last week at how the covenant nature of God's redemption continues even in the New, the New Testament. <clears throat> that Abraham is the father of all who believe, that all those then who believe in Jesus um, find themselves the children of Abraham and inher inherited um, the blessings of Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ that this has the same implications of God's covenant dealings with households. Even as we see in the Old Testament, there's no loss of, of grace as we come forward into the New Testament uh, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at many of those passages last week. Let's continue then um, in conclusion with Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, with the Great Commission. And again, after all of that Old Testament background, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, um, as he is sending them forward, and we mark uh, with the resurrection of Christ and his ascension back into heaven, um, the New Testament church, as it were, in, in this new chapter, we, we see in verse 16 of Matthew 28, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Of course, this Great Commission, we, we love it, we read it, but there is certainly context to it. And when we read and, and understand that, that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, he is the Messiah that God had promised to bring salvation to his people, the real force and significance of the Great Commission then is, is in this understanding that this is being taken to all the nations, this is something that God's covenant mercies had been um, almost exclusive to the Jewish people, the family of Abraham, by physical descent in the Old Testament. But now, this is the wonder and the marvel of the Great Commission that Jesus Christ has, is declaring. He is going back up into heaven. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. And in fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises, such as we read in Psalm 2, where the Lord, the Father, said to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Um, here Jesus is claiming this inheritance, that all the nations of the world belong to him by right, and he is the Savior of the world, truly, not merely of one family. And this was envisioned even in God's dealings with Abraham. He had told him, In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so now Jesus is is taking this uh, gospel and this salvation to the world by sending these disciples, uh, the New Testament church. They are the representatives here. And as we look at verse 19 then, going therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Again, when we understand that baptism is, is the New Testament sign of the covenant, 
It functions as circumcision did in the Old Testament. We saw those passages in Colossians and elsewhere last week. I encourage you to go back and look at that, that the spiritual reality is the same that is pictured in circumcision and in baptism. And so baptism's the New Testament sign of the covenant. What does it mean then for Jesus to tell his disciples to go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Again, it is that the covenant people of God is now being enlarged and opened in a whole-scale way to all the nations of the world. Anyone who believes in Jesus now has that same interest in the covenant mercies of God, very similar even as Paul repeatedly points us to, as we saw last week. This is what God did with Abraham. Abram then, right? He, he called him out of idolatry, out of a life of darkness. He called him uh, to be his own, to be a, a, his child, to, to be his friend, as the Old Testament says. Well, this is what God is now doing um, again so that we can all be as Abraham was, believe in the mercy of God and the promise of God in this Messiah, Jesus Christ, and come into the covenant blessings that God first gave to Abraham. Well, let's also then look at some examples. First, though, um, Mark 10 and Luke 18. These are both passages in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, as it's recorded in the Gospels, which clarify that contrary to what some people have mistakenly concluded, that Jesus did include the children of the covenant, the children of of those covenant families, he included them in his view of, of who should be included and called and viewed as, as part of his kingdom as he came in his earthly ministry. And so first of all, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16, these are familiar passages, so we won't look at much of the context in each of these. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And then again in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. <clears throat> now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the Lord Jesus here encourages us in the covenant mercies of God that it's so wrong of these disciples to assume, well, because these are young, because these are children or what have you, they, Jesus doesn't have time for them. Um, he's dealing with important kingdom matters. 
No, Jesus says, no, these are the very ones. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as Luke says. And then we see in Acts, now it's the American editors of the Westminster Confession that added these examples, and I'm thankful that they did, in the 1780s in the adoption of these standards as the Confession of Faith in the American Presbyterian Church first. And Acts 16, we have two good examples of what this looks like Having seen all of the, the covenant and theology behind this, we can appreciate this. And so in Acts 16, we're, we're looking at the missionary journey of Paul. And in verse 11, So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here's an example. Paul goes out and uh, those with him to the place they supposed there would be a gathering for prayer on the Sabbath day. And they share the gospel. They, They spoke to the women who had come together in verse 13. And one who heard was this woman named Lydia. She was a worshiper of God. God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so then in verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well. Again, we see this household um, mercy of God in the covenant dealings of God, even in the New Testament. And then in the same chapter, down at the instance of the the jailing of Paul and Silas. If you go on down to, well, in verse 25, they've been arrested and beaten and thrown into prison. In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud cried with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself, for we are all here." And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So again, another example showing the the household covenant mercies of God in the New Testament um, with respect to baptism. All right, let's go then to the fifth paragraph. And this speaks to if, if the last paragraph dealt with who should properly receive the ordinance of baptism, the next paragraph deals with um, what is the relationship of baptism to salvation. And in the fifth paragraph we read, although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. And so again, we're going to see parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, with respect to baptism, just as circumcision, um, in terms of the covenant saving mercy of God. So the first statement is, it is, although it be a great sin to contemn, that is, to treat with contempt, that's an old word we don't use often, to contemn or neglect this ordinance. It's a great sin. Uh, look at Luke chapter 7 verse 30 and we'll we'll back up a little bit to see um, John has been imprisoned <clears throat> John has sent his disciples as messengers to Jesus uh, with the question uh, are you the one who was to come or do we look for another um, uh, he, he's having um, some doubt it would seem as he is in prison, this isn't how he had envisioned this would go. He was going before the Messiah, and what, what was it? He had called everyone to repent. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. Uh, you need to get things in order. The king is coming. He's coming to deal with sin. He's coming. Repent. And then Jesus comes. He points him out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, <clears throat> here, here John is, having been faithful, he's imprisoned by a very wicked king, Herod. And you know John was thinking in terms of, well, now I was sent, I was sent, I, I was sure, I was sent to warn everyone that with the coming of Jesus, grave consequences are in store for sin. You need to repent, you need to believe and look to him to be saved and change your life. Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, what's happened to someone like Herod? Nothing, evidently. Here Jesus has been announced and been on the scene for some time. Herod, an extremely wicked king. And he's just moving right along, business as usual, doing as he will. And so you can, you can appreciate why John would begin to question, did I misunderstand? What was all this call to repentance if someone as wicked as Herod is still free to go and do as he will. And Jesus hasn't done what I thought he was going to do, which was 
bring the, the judgment of God upon sin and deal with sin. That's what was the urgency of this call to repentance. Of course, all of John's message was true. It was sent from God. But it envisioned a much larger plan than just some immediate dealing of sin. It wasn't the end of the world, but rather the coming of the Messiah. He would deal with sin. There were going to be even temporal grave consequences. And Herod wouldn't escape, but it certainly wasn't happening on a very immediate time frame, as John apparently was looking to see. And so he, he sends his messengers, are you the one who was to come, or should we look for another? And in verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, those phrases are all very significant. They're references back to prophecies in particularly Isaiah uh, that was looking ahead and foretelling the coming of the Messiah. And what Jesus is doing, I think, is twofold in his answer. He demonstrates his divine power in all of these amazing signs. He sends the messengers back to confirm two things, I think. One is he certainly is the Messiah who was to come. He is fulfilling all of these prophecies that Isaiah had declared. But the second thing is, what is the, the first and immediate emphasis of his work as the Messiah? What was it that Isaiah had foretold? I mean, certainly, sin is going to be dealt with. But what did Jesus say elsewhere? I haven't come uh, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. His, his mission first is a focus on redemption. It won't be until the second coming of the Lord Jesus as scripture teaches us, that this final focus on judgment is unveiled and, and sin is exposed and dealt with in the way that John apparently was looking for. And so he points him to his, his biblical credentials in terms of these prophets, that he is able to do what they declared the Messiah would do. And notice the nature of these acts. He's restoring, he's healing. He is causing the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised, and the good news preached. And so it's, it, God has, by his plan, and as Jesus is carrying this plan into fruition, has come to offer mercy and forgiveness and redemption and healing through the work of his Son. That is a, a window of opportunity that does close, though, either personally with your death or in terms of the history of the world, there is a day coming when this offer of mercy will have run its course. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it, was, it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now notice this, all the people, the, the masses of people, the common people, um, the tax collectors even, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Notice verse 30 now to the point of the confessions reference. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so what does that tell us? Well, John was a prophet come from God. He wasn't doing this because he thought of something that would be effective or meaningful. No, his baptism, just as his message, was something God sent him to do. It was carrying out a mission from God, and his, it was God's purpose for his people to hear the preaching of John and repent and to submit to the baptism of John in a declaration of their desire for cleansing from their sins. And so what, what do we read then about the Pharisees and the lawyers? These were, were the men who, by life and calling, were the most trained in the technicalities, at least, of the law and the Word of God in the Old Testament. And yet, even these, who by every human measure, they should have been at the front of the line when the Messiah came. But here they were, unwilling to submit to the purpose of God for themselves. And as our confession points here, that included the baptism that John came declaring. Let's also, let's also look at um, an Old Testament an Old Testament passage. Since we've established this relationship between circumcision and baptism, how important was it? Well, baptism's no less important than circumcision was. In terms of uh, if, if you understand, you hear the gospel, you understand that God is extending his covenant mercy to you for you to then hear God's call. This is what I'm calling you to do. If you're Abraham, for example, calling you to circumcise yourself and all your household, well, how serious is it for an Abraham to say, well, you know, everything up to that was good, but I'll, I'll pass on the circumcision. That's extreme. That's rebellion. That's, that's rejecting not just that one act, but it's rejecting the God who's commanded it. So it's of great significance. It's a great sin to contemn or neglect this. And not just Abraham, but notice this is an instance in the life of Moses. A, a little bit, uh, we'll say we don't have all the context of this, but we can read to uh, prophet what we do have written here. If you look at um, Exodus chapter 4 in verses 24 through 26, we have this... Um, reference to an, an instance in Moses' personal life. Now, to appreciate this, the context is Moses has been called by God to go and be his prophet, to go and bring redemption and deliverance for the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
He's to go and confront Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Um, but he is doing this as, as God declared to Moses from the very beginning of his interactions there at the burning bush. What was the, the entire basis upon which this was being done? God told Moses what? I've remembered. I've remembered the covenant that I made with Abraham. You can remember even in Abraham's own life, God had foretold this to him. He had told him that for this period of about 400 years, his descendants would languish in Egypt. He, he already had all of this planned and revealed that to Abraham. So the 400 years have concluded, and God is now telling Moses, you're the one. I'm calling you and sending you to bring deliverance for my people. And that was, that was significant. He said, I've remembered that promise I gave to Abraham and my covenant promises I always fulfill. So that's the context then for, as, as we see, um, he, he's just concluded. We don't have time to read it all, but the, the events there, the burning bush and so forth, conclude in verse 17, basically, of that same chapter. And in verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Chilling words if you read all the way to the end of that tenth plague. That is exactly what God did in the land of Egypt. But look at verse 24 now. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And that's basically all we get right there. But if you understand what Moses calling and his mission God had just declared to Moses in, a, in an amazing way with all of these signs at the burning bush he had called to his mind the significance the permanence the blessing of this covenant he had made with Abraham after 400 years in captivity God's raising up a servant to send to deliver him but what's Moses own personal life saying about those covenant promises well evidently he hadn't even circumcised his own son which maybe this was something that was a a point of contention maybe he had wanted to it's it's kind of difficult to know exactly but they knew what what needed to be done they knew why, why the lord was coming uh, against moses in judgment even on his way to Egypt. 
and Zipporah took the flint. She circumcised their son and uh, touches Moses' feet with it. And she's, she's certainly not pleased. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, and then the Lord let him pass and let him alone. So it's somewhat mysterious. Again, we don't get everything uh, that we might wish to know. We may have to wait to heaven to find out. And I'm not sure that that's going to be top of mind when we get to heaven. Um, in our, at least first questions we're asking. But nonetheless, we see there the significance. It was so important. Moses, as, as a, a child of the covenant himself, uh, that he continue in faithfulness to that covenant that was his by right and heritage. If, if God's covenant means so little to him that he's not even circumcising his own sons, well, he can't be. He's unfit to be the messenger that God would send to Egypt, and God met him and sought to put him to death um, again somewhat mysterious but we, we certainly see this, the importance of um, being careless about the sign of the covenant there in an Old Testament example so it's a great sin it's a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance what was true in the Old Testament is still true in the new with respect to baptism but having said that Two, two qualifications are added. The first is that grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it or attached to it as that no person can be saved without it. And then the second qualification is everyone that is baptized, it's not to say that they are undoubtedly regenerated. So... Some people who are not baptized, who do not receive the sign of the covenant, may yet experience the grace of the covenant. And some that are baptized and have the sign of the covenant will not, perhaps, receive the fullness of the grace of the covenant. Because, again, it does come down to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that first, um, begin looking, I should say, at the first of those, that there are instances recorded in the Scripture where God grants faith and accomplishes salvation ahead of, or, uh, or apart from, at that point at least, any reference to the sign of the covenant. And the first of these we looked at last week in Romans 4, I believe it was last week or week before, Romans 4, with that classic case of Abraham. Here we have Abraham, who he was saved. Paul makes very clear, looking at the Old Testament scriptures, he was saved by faith. His righteousness um, was counted to him by faith. Let's look then at um, verse 9, just for the sake of time is this blessing then the blessing of the justification forgiveness of our sins is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised for we say that faith was counted to abraham as righteousness how then was it counted to him was it before or after 
he had been circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So we don't have to look far, do we? Abraham is the first one we see to to understand that as important as the sign of the covenant is in the life of God's people, very important. To, to treat it with contempt or neglect is a very great sin. and th- This doesn't take away from that at all. Yet, we don't want to become confused. Our view of this sign of the covenant or of the sacrament, if you will, is not that it is what conveys the grace of God upon a person. That's actually a Roman Catholic view of the sacraments. No, we see examples where the grace of God is conveyed with no sacrament in the picture, as in the case of Abraham, when God calls Abraham to follow him. Um, He gives him faith, and for an extended period of his life, that is the extent of of, uh, what we see. It's far into Abraham's life. You remember his age, as is highlighted there, with respect to the, um, the conception and birth of Isaac, the promised seed. You remember Abraham's declarations. I mean, he's an old man by that point. And it's after that that God gives this covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. So it wasn't just a short time that we might mistake it or miss it. But no, for an extended period of Abraham's life. Well, that, that's one example We also have in the New Testament the example in Acts 10 of Cornelius. And as we read through this chapter, Cornelius appears to us as a Gentile who nonetheless had an Old Testament understanding of the mercy of God and a faith and a belief in God's mercy to the extent of his knowledge such that God would describe him as a devout man who feared God. And several other descriptions will come to. Now, God sends Peter to him to preach the gospel to him. That's a very significant moment in Peter's life and in the gospel as we see it recorded here in Acts um, in terms of clarifying and reiterating that, yeah, this is the great commission. Jesus really meant it. And the the covenant is not limited uh, to the demographics that it largely was in the Old Testament. Uh, It it really is um, extended to the nations of the world. And so what that means is those, those specific laws of diet and so forth that God had instituted to help keep his people separate from the nations around them Well, God declares specifically that those have been set aside because there need be no separation between those who have faith in his son. And so in Acts 10, um, we read at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, 
a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Notice verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So what, what do we have here? We have an example of someone that God had worked in their heart. He had given grace and was drawing him to a complete understanding of the gospel as we see him sending Peter to fulfill. But already, he's a devout man. He's acting out his faith. He's praying continually to God. In verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. This is reminiscent, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this happened also to the prophet Ezekiel. And the Lord had given him, we won't take time to to look at that, but I'd encourage you to look at it. And Ezekiel protests at that time in the vision, Lord, (laughs) this is unclean. And God made provision for him. Well, you don't have to eat that. Peter does the same thing here. By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But notice the Lord's response in his case in verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation." For I have sent them to for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now we can read that and not really understand how important that is, but for centuries and centuries, God's people, the ones who were seeking faithfulness to the Lord, had been so careful to keep these separations between themselves and these unclean peoples all around them. And again and again, we see in the history of the Old Testament uh, how 
failing to do that, the syncretism with the, the neighboring peoples, intermarriage led to a blended religion, a, a, a corruption of the religion of Israel and an unfaithfulness to the Lord over and over and over. And that was, again, the purpose of such things as the dietary laws, which were to reinforce every time you ate, you have to be separate, you have to be different, you can't intermingle, you can't be like all these unclean peoples, uh, else they will take you away from the Lord. And it was deliberate that it would impact such things as having a meal, that you wouldn't even be able to sit down and have, have that relaxed uh, fellowship with those who would not be with you in worshiping the God of Israel. And so for verse 23, so he invited them in to be his guests. That's, that's huge. That's not something that's normal for these uh, good, faithful people um, as, as we know them to be. So the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa. And ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So I wish we had more time. There's a lot in this passage that's exciting and important for us to realize. But to the point of our reference in the confession, notice the order of events there. That God sent Peter and he preached the gospel. And what was the response to that? They, they believed. They believed. And God recognized that and acknowledged that by sending the Holy Spirit upon them just as he had the church there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And only then does Peter say, well, here, there, there's nothing else we should wait for. They've believed. God has poured out the reality of his Holy Spirit upon them. And so can anyone withhold water for baptizing these? And so they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But to the point of the confession, there is another example where the grace of God's covenant happened first. It, it arrives first in the lives and experiences of these people. So again, another instance where we can see that God hasn't so tied his grace of his covenant to the sign of the covenant as though he can't extend that grace apart from the sign. Now, the next thing we'll look at, Lord willing, next week is, it's also true that the sign of the covenant may be applied to those who do not receive the grace of the covenant because they reject Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the one who has earned and conveys all of the covenant blessings of God. Well, let's close with prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy to Abraham. We thank you for calling a man out of a life of idolatry and giving him the blessing of being your child and friend, of belonging to your people. And we thank you that you have given us that privilege. As we are called to faith in Jesus Christ, you allow us to be joined to that great covenant people of God that we might receive the blessings that you first gave to Abraham, the father of all who believe. We pray that you would stir our hearts, Lord, to great thanksgiving today as we worship you together with your people and we ask that you would come and feed us your word that we might be encouraged in our faith and strengthened. Help us to see your glory more clearly and to praise you for it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.